All right, all right, all right. Welcome everybody to Silicon Zombies, where you'll find the best brains in the Bay. Every week we uncover hidden truths and we spark new epiphanies and connect live with brilliant innovators, thinkers, and entrepreneurs. It's Tuesday, September 27th. I'm Nick Larson, serial entrepreneur and ambitious speech bum. We are joined today by Mr. Peter's, Peter Wang, the Sultan of social media and the terrific uh, Sharon Byers from Silicon Valley Magazine. Uh, so as always, audience participation is encouraged. Before we get things kicked off, we want to give a shout out to Nicodex, our sponsor and your remote team for software development. So, so please, uh, Anna, you have the floor. Anna, you, you might be on mute. There you go. Sorry. No worries. Can you, can you hear me? Yep, loud yeah. and clear. Perfect, I'm sorry. Hi everyone, great to be here again. Um, so we're Nick Codex. When we, it comes to building digital products, website, mobile apps, there's a lot to consider, right? Like who is on your team? Are they outsourced? If so, probably have the cost, but do they have the right expertise? That's where we, Nick Codex, come in. Who, well, we have perfected the both but model, which is built, operate, and transfer with a stellar track record over five years that speaks for itself. How do we do this? We source the perfect team for both software and creative teams for our highly qualified talent in Mexico, handling all the taxes, legal administration, paperwork, and all the legal requirements. So with us, you can save up us 40% with a proven team that also is in your same time zone. So if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. So that's who we are, Nicodex. Wonderful, thank you so much, Anna. Uh, so today we have the terrific opportunity, I should say terrific, because there's golf applications, of speaking with Mr. Dan Chapanier, who is an adjunct lecturer, a lecturer at Santa Clara University, and also a, a serial founder with a couple really impressive wins under his belt. So excited to learn more about how he teaches artificial intelligence and machine learning at Santa Clara University. Uh, but uh, but before we get into that, uh, Dan, please help us understand a little bit more about yourself and how you are innovating the robotics world. Yeah, well, Nick, first off, thank you so much for hosting me on, on your show. Uh, I'm a huge fan and I really appreciate being on uh, this side of the microphone. Yeah, cool. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, Arcadia is an exciting business. I, I, I have to say, uh, I started off as the original uh, first cash investor in the company. Um, after I sold my last startup, uh, I thought I was done being in the operating game and I was uh, happily uh, in the semi-retirement mode and teaching and making a few investments on the side. But this business was just too exciting to pass up. Um, and so uh, the founder uh, came out of uh, NVIDIA and before that MIT C-Sale and uh, he has a bunch of his MIT and NVIDIA friends helping him uh, build an autonomous vehicle for unstructured environments. Um, and I think the big challenge with on-road autonomous vehicles is really political in nature. I think the, the problem has been solved of being able to drive vehicles autonomously. If you look at the public data, uh, Waymo's driving 30,000 miles between each human intervention. Uh, but the bar is much, much higher for an autonomous vehicle than it is for uh, a human driver. 
they have to be pretty much 10 times better. Um, and so we think that being uh, in, in the unstructured environment on private land, uh, where you're solving real problems that bring value to the owners of that land uh, is extremely valuable. So that's what, that's what the company is going after. Brilliant. And, you know, just last week we had a, a, another founder that was focusing in the, uh, the artificial intelligence uh, transportation space as well um, with, with ASCA. Uh, but this, is, this seems to be practical from, uh, from a golfing perspective. Um, so help us understand about the, the device itself. Yeah, so, so the, the device itself is like a, a riding lawnmower sized device. Okay, so, so it's, it's about the same size, but there's, there's no human on it. Um, and it, it's the same types of sensors that you would see in any autonomous vehicles. Uh, so it has a, a LiDAR, it has stereo cameras, uh, it has multiple IR sensors, uh, it has precision GPS, uh, precision odometry, uh, all, all the sensors you would expect. And so it can do localization, it can do object detection. Um, and the idea is that over time, it builds up more and more skills as we get more and more data into the system. Um, and as it gets those skills, then it takes on more jobs in more complex environments. Wow, brilliant. And um, so, so it's able to collect data and share it and be more precise in the future because, I mean, Cut, like trimming, trimming uh, the grass. I mean, there, there's fairway, there's the, the putting green, there's the rough. It seems like a pretty, a pretty difficult uh, job, even, even for a human. It, it, it is, and and I think that's the that's the beauty of what Arcadia is trying to do is is they've broken down the jobs into different levels of sophistication, and we're starting with the simplest jobs and making our way into the more complicated jobs over time. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the tractor is designed from the very beginning to be able to do almost any job. So, so it has like three attachment points. Uh, so it can push, it can tow, and it has a deck underneath for mowing. Uh, and the founder even, even uh, thought, hey, we could swap out the top and put a little beer fridge and a little heating compartment <laughs> and deliver hot dogs and beer to the golfers wow. uh, at some point in the future. So, you know, it's really, it's really meant to be a generic tractor. Yeah. Um, and then, and then, you know, I, I think you're alluding to, to the different environments, right? Like it, it's a fairways or roughs or, you know, eventually it'll go off the golf course and it can do agriculture and all these different But golf, a golf course is such a wonderful place for us to learn that we're very excited about using it as our training ground where we get paid to learn to go do all these other jobs in the world afterwards. Do you, you're, do you mean specifically taking that knowledge and applying it to new verticals like, like agriculture or? Yeah, and, and you know, th that's where the, the founder, Dave, got his start. Um, he built the first... Uh, precision agriculture robot over 10 years ago and uh, his robots made its way into the Guggenheim Museum in New York and the Museum of Science in London and the whole idea behind his first robot was like a little quadruped robot that would walk through a farmer's field and give each plant the attention it needed to thrive right so if it needed water or fertilizer or you know weeds to be removed it would it would apply the treatment to each plant 
And in, in precision agriculture, you can double the yields compared to mass agriculture. But no one has time on a massive scale to double the yields because it would take too much labor. And so the, the idea of having a, a fleet of precision robots going out there and doing precision agriculture is a bit overwhelming. And so rather than boil the ocean, what, what Dave thought about was, hey, let's, let's go start on the golf course with really simple jobs and, and treat grass as a crop and get very good with grass. And then eventually you can go on to other crops and guess what? Wheat, wheat is a grass, right? And right. many of the cereals that we eat are grasses. And so if we're good at tending grass on a fairway, then we can certainly do grass in farmers' fields at, at some point in the future. Wow. Wow. So so you, you were semi-retired from semiconductors and, and there was a, a, a few big wins. I mean, so, you know, to kind of peel back the onion a little bit, before you were teaching at Santa Clara, you, you had... A, a big win with uh, Shambhala, uh, an electronic market maker uh, in, the, in the equities department. And then there was a semiconductor vendor before that or in proprietary trading system. And, and, and help us understand where you, where you started and, and how it brought you to where you are now. Sure. So, so uh, I mean, I'm a double E by training and uh, started my career in, in communications, like electronic communications. Um, and, um, and then I started a semiconductor company a long time ago that made the first working chipset for 10 gigabit Ethernet. So if, if you guys have plugged your computer into a wall with a, an Ethernet connection, um, we made the first working chipset for 10 gig Ethernet, and we grew that to profitability and sold it. And after, after that company, I, uh, I, I joined another startup, which was Shambhala, which was a semiconductor company, but the main application for their chips was trading firms tried, trying to trade faster. So these were Wall Street banks and small independent firms using our technology to trade really fast. Now, the, the, the semiconductor industry works well when you have millions of chips that you can sell because it, it, it's very expensive to develop a piece of silicon and you need a large volume market to make it worth the investment. But there was only a handful of banks that would buy this particular chip. So I, I said to the investors, listen, we can you know, move on from this business, or maybe we can do a massive pivot, use our technology, become the fastest traders on Wall Street, and make money that way as traders. I see. And uh, credit to our investors, they were brave enough to support that pivot. Um, and uh, off we went to become uh, high frequency traders uh, using our proprietary technology. And, and lo and behold, we became the fastest traders on Wall Street. Um, and we were a market maker on the NASDAQ and all the big electronic markets, uh, trading you know, upwards of 100 million shares a day and wow. you know, doing a so ton of volume. Um, and then grew that firm and sold wow. it in 2016, and, and, uh, and then that, that was uh, when I became uh, an instructor at uh, Santa Clara. That's brilliant. Dan, I, I think we're getting a little bit of static on your end, so maybe uh, put yourself on mute and then come back, and I, and I hope that helps. And, and while you're doing that, I'm curious if, if latency was a, a, a big factor, at, because like probably fractions of a second faster would, would improve uh, – 
being connected to the to the market did, did that have any impact were you were you guys geographically close to uh new york or help us understand yep yep and exactly so we we had um our our chips uh, within uh, uh servers that were uh at the same data centers as the stock exchanges uh and uh what we did was reduce the latency uh by ridiculous amounts um you know, we could do we could do trades in under a microsecond, um, and so that means that we had market data coming in, and we would make a, a trading decision, uh, and then ship out an order in, in less than a microsecond. Um, and and we were the first players to do that kind of stuff, and we caught the attention of the big exchanges, and we got invited to be part of their committees to to decide on how to structure markets going forward. And, wow! You know, we 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 were we were a pretty big volume trader. That is so cool. And, um, you know, any, anytime you get to be part of making the rules for something like this, I feel like you're, you're doing the right thing. You're in the right space. Um, so, so the, the, the idea is to be valuable to these, how many, you said 15,000 golf courses in the, in the U S to start. Is that right? Yeah. The, the, the stats behind the, the, the size of that industry are, are quite remarkable. So yes, 15,000 golf courses, which is more golf courses than there are McDonald's restaurants in the U S <laughs> okay. uh, which is, which is crazy. And, and another crazy statistic is that the land mass of all golf courses in the U S put together is bigger than the state of Delaware. Wow. Yeah. So it's a, it's a massive, massive industry and it's an industry that, you know, has some fundamental struggles going on now, right? There, there's a shortage of qualified professionals in the industry. Uh, they spend a ton of their money on uh, unskilled labor uh, and then they have higher skilled labor uh, doing things like driving the mowers uh, that that's higher skills than some of the jobs. Uh, and so the, the cost structure is prohibitive to attract and retain the skilled workers that they need. Um, and so I think in part what we're doing is, is addressing a labor shortage, but we're also helping change the economic model for golf course operators so that they can retain their general managers, their PGA golf pros and, and their superintendents and pay them, you know, competitive living wages. Because the device is about $40,000, which is half of what they would pay somebody to, to sit on the mower and, and trim the, the course. Is that right? Yeah, it's, uh, that, that's, about, that's about the price per year. And it's a, it's a robot as a service. And, and they hire us to just make sure the robot is always operational um, and doing the job it needs to do in the field. And, and if you think about it, a golf course is doing these jobs seven days a week. Um, with multiple shifts and multiple workers and, and a tractor uh, needs four hours for charging, but keeps on going for about 10 to 12 hours after a, a charge. Uh, so the, the tractors can work quite a few hours a day and then it's uh, able to perform a lot of tasks during that time. You know, be a really cool uh, influencer for you guys is, is uh, Adam Sandler. Maybe he could wear uh, like a, Bru a Bruins jersey or something. I don't know, like Happy Gilmore. That, that's a great idea. Yeah, have him use a hockey stick too, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so you, you've got this device. By the way, your team is just stellar. I mean, from an investor perspective, you look at team technology and traction. Um, you know, your, your chief technology officer, again, he was a 
PhD from uh, Carnegie Mellon, I believe, and then he ran the, the autonomous vehicle department at NVIDIA. Um, and and uh, you being the, the first investor that came to then uh, later down the road run the company, I mean, that's just a beautiful story. Is your team raising capital right now? Um, if so, how far along are you? What are you going to do? Peel back, uh, you know, pull, pull back the curtain a little bit for uh, for our audience here. Yeah. So, uh, so we we've um, uh, just started the process of raising a little bit more money, um, and so we've had uh, probably about half a dozen meetings so far with uh, with people. So it's literally the last week uh, that we've started to meet with people, um, and the interest level is pretty high. Um, I think. Uh, you know, it's a challenging environment for sure. And so, um, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out like where valuations would be, but at this point, we're not as concerned about valuation as we are about finding the right people to come on board and help us out. And um, it's really great to, to be uh, meeting with people. And, you know, Nick, you're one of the guys I'd love to work with going forward. So, you know, hopefully we can find a way to have our paths cross on this project. Yeah, that'd be really neat. I mean, speaking of folks that could move the the needle for you uh and that are focused in the green tech investment space we've got zeka len so zeka if, if uh, at some point here you feel like um throwing your hat in the ring and asking some questions to dan uh, please feel free to do so and, and that goes out to all the other folks uh, in the audience as well if you have any questions for dan please feel free to uh to to jump on stage here and, or hit the the hands up button also wanted to give a quick shout out to coach mark detargiani who is the the fellow that introduced us, I think maybe like a year and a half ago or so at, at the PGA event. Um, how, how did you get to know uh, Coach Mark? You know, it's funny that you call him Coach Mark. I call him Banker Mark. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, Mark, Mark is our banker uh, and uh, has been super helpful to us. Uh, and uh, he, he invited me to, to, you know, an industry conference recently as well. And I'm super, super grateful to Mark. And I see he's in the audience. So I'm uh, very, very grateful to him. Um, but, uh, but, uh, yeah, I think, um, uh, you know, just, just, uh, in, in general, we've, we've been fortunate to have a, for, a good, uh, ecosystem of, of helpers, uh, helping the company along and, and Mark is one of them. Love it. Love it. So, um, who would you say, so let me give this a little bit of context. It, you know, we believe a lot in the power of community, both for you know, raising capital and getting new customers and also strategic support and visibility. Who were some of the, the mentors, Dan, that you had in your life that really helped you get to the next level? Um, you know, that's actually a, a, a great question. It's a bit of a Tarzan uh, adventure for me is, is it's like mentors kind of uh, somehow go from one to another and, and over time uh, have changed. Um, so when I first started working, I wanted to work for the smallest company that would hire me. So when I graduated from college, I went to work for a, a 15 person company where I was able to ask the, the boss why he was making the decisions that he was making at the time. And, uh, anytime he made a decision I didn't understand, I, I went up to him and I said, hey, why, why did you make that call? And, and he was nice enough to explain those things to me. Um, and then that kind of continued. Um, on my second job, I did a bit of the same thing. And, and on my third job, I was working for a company called Anadigix in uh, New Jersey. And I was living in New York City, commuting into New Jersey. 
And the CEO of the company was also living in the city. And so we became commuter mates. And, uh, and then I took the same approach and always asked him, hey, why are you making those calls? And why are you doing this? And he was nice enough to explain those things to me. Um, and then when I started my first company, uh, he, he actually joined the board and was nice enough to continue to be a coach to me wow. uh, as an independent board member and uh, helped me grow my first company into, into a great outcome. Um, and, and over time, like I always felt it was important to surround myself with uh, people that uh, would be honest and give blunt feedback. And so I was a member of different CEO groups. Uh, some of them I started myself. Uh, I was a part of YPO for a while. Um, and then uh, different, different CEOs that I would go to and just ask for advice on different questions. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's important to always, always be humble uh, and uh, approach things uh, with an open mind and, and then, you know, learn from people that, that are smarter than you. Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, Peter, did you have a, a question here? Yeah. Hey, uh, again, uh, good to meet you. Good to meet you. Oh, yeah, I like how technically both of us are in the semiconductor industry since I work with Intel now. <laughs> with you, you work for Intel? <laughs> um, yeah, right? So, uh, so, question for you. It sounds like with um, the real goal behind you, uh, behind what you're doing now is the technology revolving around, um, revolving, like, you, it sounds like you are finding different ways to apply the technology. In this case, it's, it's hardware. Um, I'm curious where, if you're willing to share what other applications do you see um, your technology applying to? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the beauty of, uh, you know, the, the, what we're doing is, yes, there is a hardware play, but the software stack itself is really the, the difficult part. And with autonomous vehicles, the, the way the software gets better is by accumulating more data so that you get exposed to more use cases and more corner cases, if, if you will. And let me, let me define that. Um, I mean, you know, you have to forgive me because I'm a, a data science and statistics professor, right? So I, I, teach, <laughs> I teach that stuff and so I'm, I swim in those concepts all the time. But, but if you think of a normal distribution, right, just a, a bell curve, most, most events on a daily life, even for an autonomous vehicle, happen near the center of the distribution. So that's the most common events that you see. But then every once in a while, you run into a strange occurrence. And that might be an animal running across your path. It might be a bird flying in front of you. It might be uh, a tree falling. It might be... Uh, someone, uh, you know, on a golf course, leaving a, a golf club behind and, you know, you don't want to run over that golf club with a mower because it could damage the blades. So every, every one of these corner cases becomes a learning experience. And that's where you're building differentiation in the software stack. Um, and you can have a different environmental stack for different environments. So it could be different on a golf course than it would be for a farmer's field and all these other applications. But you're, you're, the more environments you're exposed to, the more, the more you're learning. And so over time, we will address uh, different verticals. But for the next three to five years, golf alone is a big enough opportunity for us to get really big and successful. And so we've got a very focused approach on just doing well in that first beachhead, 
getting paid to learn, and then taking those lessons and using them in other verticals down the road. Oh, nice. So it's almost like you're, you are taking all these learnings uh, in this one particular use case and almost like adding to the global overall learning of just all autonomous driving. Absolutely. What are the things that did you learn selling, you know, starting scaling and selling two companies, Dan, that, uh, that you're able to apply uh, building Arcadia? Um, I mean, I think the, the most important thing is to, to listen to customers to, to ultimately understand the unarticulated needs. Mm. Um, so, so product market fit is uh, the, the only way to get to a really great product market fit is by putting yourself in the shoes of your customers so that you understand how to operate the business almost as well as they do. Wow. And once you understand that, you can decide how should I, how should I build something using what I know to help their business run better. And effectively, that's, that's, what, that's what we're doing. And, and it's similar to the stories I was telling you about sitting in the car with the CEO of you know, the company I worked for in New Jersey. Um, you're, you're just trying to put yourself into someone else's shoes and say, well, how would I do things better if I had you know, the skills that I have? And in this case, it's how do we, how do, we do things better given the Arcadia technology? And, and I think we've achieved fantastic product market fit. So we have one customer already that, that has ordered 20 tractors. Wow. And we, um, we think that, you know, that's just the beginning. Like they're, they're trying it on, um, on uh, a bunch of locations today. Uh, but we think that there's room for that to grow to, to hundreds of tractors, which is that one customer. And in general, you know, you, you, you get to that once the customer feels you have their best interest at heart. And uh, for that, you have to create a, a relationship of trust and, and show that you, you really understand what they need. Right. Just like Coach Mark says, no like trust, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious. Oh, yeah. Please go ahead. Oh, sure, Dan, this is Sharon, and speaking of Coach Mark, if he's Coach Mark or Banker Mark, <laughs> you are Professor Dan. So I'd love to learn a bit about how you came to be on faculty at Santa Clara um, and what you teach there. Awesome. Um, so the, uh, when, I, when I did my uh, trading startup, uh, I did not know anything about trading at the start of that venture. Um, and so we got an advisor from Santa Clara University to help us out. And after selling that startup, he looked at me, thought I looked bored and said, hey, Dan, why don't you come help us out at Santa Clara and uh, teach? And I'd always thought of maybe going back to being a professor when I would retire, but um, I was about 15 years ahead of schedule. <laughs> um, and so I... I went over there and then I, I co-taught a class with, with that professor. So um, I'll put a little plug up for him. His name is Sanjeev Das and Sanjeev is just awesome. He was at Harvard before he came to Santa Clara and his wife moved over here to take a job at Berkeley and he wanted to teach in the South Bay and came to Santa Clara. And uh, I got the 
ton of respect for him. And so I co-taught my very first class with him, um, got the hang of it sort of, and then uh, started teaching on my own. And uh, it's been it's been really wonderful. That's fantastic. Um, what advice do you give your students as they kind of start their careers or start planning their careers? Is there something you're kind of known for telling people? You know, in, in this environment, uh, it's, it's going to sound a bit old school, but I, I tell them to actually show up at work. Um, <laughs> it, it's, uh, it, it's just good to, to get the informal conversations and get the water cooler chats and really uh, understand the vibe of what makes a company tick. Um, and, uh, and so I tell all my students, you know, even if the boss tells you it's okay to be there only three days a week, uh, you should probably be there five days a week and, uh, just, just make sure you're, you're seen and that you're asking questions and that you try to go a step beyond what's asked of you always deliver a little bit more value than what's expected of you. And, and they'll keep you because, you know, times have been good for the last few years. Um, things are a little bit choppy in public markets now, and who knows what's going to happen in the next little while. And, and I think if you always demonstrate that you create lots of value, people will keep you through good times and bad times. And, uh, wow. I think it's the same for companies, right? If you bring lots of value to the marketplace, you know, you get funded and you get to do good things. And, you know, I think if you live your life that way, lots of good things happen. That's really timely advice. One last question I'm going to throw in. What? commonalities are there between being a CEO and being a professor? Hmm. Um, you know, in, in both cases, I think you're, you're explaining things to people. Um, you know, I think, uh, as an, as a CEO, um, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to explain your vision. You're trying to explain, uh, how, how you want to see things operate. Um, and you're doing this with investors, customers, uh, employees, uh, you're trying to create enthusiasm and all those things happen as an instructor or professor as well, right? You, you, you want to create passion for the subject you teach. Um, you want to have people come back to you six months or a year or two years after you taught a class and say, oh, you know, that stuff you taught me was just so critical and I'm so glad I took that class. And that's probably the most gratifying thing that happens is when the students come back and, you know, tell you that the advice was really useful. I love that. What kind of student were you? I was a really bad student. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. In, in undergrad, I was not, I was not, you know, very focused on my studies. I, I was in engineering school and I did what I needed to, to get through. Um, but I, I, I don't think I had a huge passion for the, the subject. Uh, in grad school, I went to business school and studied finance. And then I, I, did, did, I did very well at that. Um, and, and I think that, you know, you have to find your passion and, and then it makes it easy to work hard on something. Um, I think engineering was, was very difficult for me and I, I, I'm glad I did it. And it's a good basis for a lot of what I do today, obviously. But, um, but my real passion is business and, and building successful businesses. That's awesome. I, I love how you, you mentioned the, 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 the point about talking to, or hanging at the water cooler and building that relationship. Um, there's a, a book called The Trillion Dollar Coach, uh, which is uh, you know, Bill Campbell, um, and he was the personal coach to uh, Steve Jobs and Larry and Sergey and Susan Wojcicki and a bunch of wonderful folks. Um, and he said that trust 
and, and psychological safety are, are the most important for a team performance. Um, because that's where you get the crazy ideas because you're not worried about what the impressions are of, uh, of your, of your team. And they know you, they, they know your family. So you're able to go a little bit deeper and, and build that bond. And, and that probably is important for creativity. Um, do you see similar brainstorm dynamics between your students or how do you run your classes? Yeah, I mean, creating a safe environment is, is important in business and in a classroom for sure. And, and you know, there, there's, a, there's a, funny, a funny dynamic in a, in a classroom environment as well. Like you, 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 wanna, you wanna say that there's no such thing as a dumb question, but you also want to enable the students to answer questions for themselves. Um, and to be able to do research as well. And, uh, and so I, I, I encourage the students to, to ask uh, any question, uh, but then when they ask something that can obviously be Googled, uh, I encourage them to, to try and look that up and then ask me the question again if they, if they can't figure it out in a couple of minutes. But I do it in a way that hopefully is, is seen as non-judgmental. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully that, that, that resonates well, it seems to, um, and then direct the energies more in the, in the creative solving of cases, like in a, in a business environment, uh, I make a lot of use of business cases and that's where you can let students get very creative in terms of how to solve business problems in novel ways. Um, and that more than asking questions is a place where, where people can shine and in a, in a, an operating company environment, I think the same thing needs to happen, right? You, you, you really let people shine by offering crazy ideas and, and it's okay if, you know, 90% of the crazy ideas don't make it, but the 10% that do, that's what lets you win in a, in a decisive way. Love that. Do you, so do you go by Professor Dan or does anybody call you Mr. T? You know, it's funny. It's uh, it, my last name is is easy to pronounce if you're from Montreal and, and speak French. But if 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 you're here, I actually do go by Professor Dan because <laughs> it's easier. But just Dan is okay too. I don't expect the professor. How do you pronounce your last name? Um, well, in French, it, it would be Trépanier, but in uh, in English, you know, you just say Trépanier or Trépanier. But you know, I never quite know where to put the emphasis on on, on the right syllables, kind of thing. I only asked that because I wanted to hear you speak French. <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting. Can you say it one more time? I took French for many years of my life. <laughs> so, so the, the way the way it would be said in, in Quebec or in French would be trépanier, and uh, it kind of means three baskets. Uh, panier mm. is a basket, and tré is kind of like a way of saying three. Interesting. Okay, Dan, nice to meet you. I'm Stephanie. Nice to meet you. So I actually just started a new job today and I was wondering what kind of advice you'd have for someone like me who's like a young professional and starting off with a new job. Any kind of tips that you have? And, and, and can, you, can you give me a bit more? So what, what type of job and what was your studies before this and what, what, what have you done so far? Yeah, I've been in event coordination. I went to school studying liberal arts and now I'm just sort of focusing on either being an executive assistant or going into the events field. Nice. Well, mm -hmm. in general, I think it's, it's good to do anything in life with goals. So if, if you know what you want to get out of the job and where you want to be in a couple of years, 
um, then that makes it uh, easier to wake up in the morning, go to work and feel like you're working towards something that matters to you. Um, and the goals can be, you know, eclectic. It could be personal growth. It can be learning. It can be getting ready for your next job. Uh, it can be putting aside a little bit of money. Uh, it could be, uh, you know, getting uh, to a place where you get access to a, an educational benefit so that you can do another degree and, and pick up additional skills as you go. Um, but I think if you have an idea of where you want to be in your personal life um, and in your professional life, then that helps. And, and you know, I, I know for me, when I was starting out, I, I, I had a huge amount of admiration for Steve Jobs and Bill Gates at the time. And I thought, oh, I want to be a tech entrepreneur like them. And so that's what made me grind through engineering school, even though I didn't quite enjoy it as much as I probably should have. And then my first few jobs, that's why I wanted to work in tiny little companies is be exposed to the boss and learn how to become a business person. And, and so I think in your case, you have to find what's the mentorship opportunity to help you grow in, in a professional way. And then what are your personal goals? What are the things you want to achieve? Thank you so much. Absolutely. I totally agree with the whole passion aspect. I think getting up in the morning, being happy, I think is one of the most important things we can all strive for, right? Absolutely. Uh, Dan, you mentioned that uh, entrepreneur means three baskets. Um, I was told before by a friend that um, that when you're starting a new job, you can optimize for money and experience, but not title, or experience and title, but not money. What what is your uh, what what are your thoughts on uh, how to approach a, a new role and and what you're trying to get out of it? Um, well, I, I, I mean, for me, um, titles have actually not been super important. Um, and, and, you know, it's maybe easy to say, cause I, I've been CEO for 20 <laughs> years, but you know, then, then I came into a, a lecturer position at Santa Clara and my department chair said, Hey, I can make you professor, you know, emeritus of industrious, this and that. And I said, I don't, I don't really care, but but I think other people, you know, can, can kind of see that as a path of progression. And I think titles do represent to some extent, you know, a, a, a roadmap of achievement. And, and I think they, they are useful as, as a guide. But, but I think, you know, the, the, the real satisfaction comes out of achieving things. And, and, you know, if you're able to build something out of nothing or you're able to take something from a particular stage and take it to the next level. Um, in my mind, that's very, very satisfying. Um, and you know, the the money generally follows from that, right? If you're if you're creating value and doing something that matters, then you generally get rewarded for that. Now, that's not always the case. You know, like certainly in education, um, that's not a place where there's a lot of money to be made necessarily. Uh, but there's a ton of satisfaction that comes out of seeing your students going off to do interesting things and, and helping the next generation succeed. And, and that creates a lot of value for, for the world and, and for these students in particular. So I think there's a lot of different measurements of success beyond money, titles or, you know, accomplishments, direct accomplishments per se. Uh, but, but, you know, all of those kind of tie together. I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm making sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, 
prioritization. I, I get that. Um, so, so back to the investment piece real quick. We've got Mr. Connor Riley, who's, who's run a number of funds. Connor, if you want to hit the hands up button and, and join the stage, that would be awesome. And while we're waiting for Connor to do that, um, I guess what are the what are the three main things that uh, that you teach your students around um, around data science? So I, I have um, a few classes that I teach that are data science related. Um, one is a statistics class, another one is a forecasting class, and another one is a machine learning for finance class, um, and. In all these classes, I, uh, I, I, I try to make sure that the students use common sense. Um, it's, it's easy to just turn the crank on data, uh, put the data into a model, whether it's a simple prediction model or a machine learning model or a deep learning model. And then you look at an output and you think, boy, I'm a genius. I produced a machine learning model or something really awesome. But, you know, you try to apply it to a real life problem and it doesn't do much for you. And, and critical thinking and using your common sense and trying to understand the, the context of what you're trying to solve is super important. Um, so so that, that's what I, I try to push is just understand the problem you're trying to solve viscerally. And then you can use the tools after that to, to produce a model. Very good. Thank you. Uh, Connor, you have the floor. Well, I, I appreciate that. Sorry that I'm kind of joining late here, but this is a long-time listener, first-time caller. Um, <laughs> so I, I think one of the things that's always interesting when you start looking at robotics is everyone's sort of flying to lowering the cost of production. So when when you're looking at that and often having to choose between quality and price, how do you how do you make that determination? And more importantly, how does the factor factors of production at scale fit into that conversation? So in our case, um, you know, we, we actually are, are providing the robot as a service and we're, we're responsible for the ongoing service and maintenance of the, of the robot. And so we're very motivated to have a very reliable robot that will require minimal maintenance uh, because a field visit is expensive, um, and so we we actually tend to design to be more robust and more um, idiot proof, if you will, uh, and and more tamper proof. Um, and so our, our our tractor is designed to be hit by a golf ball and not care. Uh, it's designed to run over bumpy terrain and not care. Uh, it has only two moving parts, so there's two DC motors directly attached to. Uh, the two active wheels, uh, and that's it. So there's no transmission. There's no complicated uh, gear systems. Um, so so we, we design for simplicity and, and then, you know, try to have a, a robust, easy-to-maintain device. Um, now, for, for other verticals and other applications and other business models, people might make different trade-offs, um, but, but in our case... You know, we, 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 we eat our own dog food, if you will. So, so it needs to be, it needs to taste pretty good. That's great. How long is the, does the lifetime value of your customer, how long is that 
uh, being forecasted? And how long does the contract need to be implemented before you're kind of in the black given the cost of the robots? So we, we don't disclose like publicly like uh, some, some of these metrics, but uh, the payback period is, is, is reasonable. And the lifetime value that we assume for the device and our customers is, is three to five years. Um, we, we believe that if we get to the one year mark, they're probably going to be hooked. And so we, we, we hope people will continue to use us for a long, long time after the one year mark. That's, that's really, that's really interesting. And I, I would imagine because it's robot that you're not looking at it in terms of replacement costs or anything else. It's just sort of continually, um, moving that contract forward as, um, as long as they want. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Thank you, Connor. Um, so Stephanie, it sounded like you had another question as well. I do have another question. So for my new job, it's actually a startup and I'm extremely new to the startup scene and I'm still trying to learn everything. So what would be a good way for me to ask for equity from the startup in the nicest way possible? <laughs> well, uh, first off, welcome to the startup world. I think uh, it's a great move on your part. There's uh, definitely a fire hose effect where you have to learn a lot of stuff quickly and I'm sure I'm sure you'll enjoy that um, I mean generally the best time to negotiate your equity is when when you're starting um, and if you take you try to uh, negotiate by by asking for what is a uh, the average equity grant perhaps they might give other people in similar roles and how do they perceive your value and um, and, and, and those kinds of things but but generally the, the places where uh, employers would respond well is if you can point to tangible deliverables that you might be able to provide over time and then offer to tie your vesting to achieving some substantial goals that might help create value for the company. Um, and so if in your case you're, you're helping create customer events or you're helping create uh, stuff that would create more business from the customers or anything like that, then, then maybe you can offer to tie some of your option grants uh, to milestones. Um, and then often companies will come back and respond and say, well, you know, we love the idea, but it's a bit complicated to manage. So maybe we, we give you a bit more upfront and then, you know, we just look to have you achieve these goals over time and we'll monitor that performance. Um, and that may be how they manage it. But, but I would offer to tie, whatever incremental grants to, to specific goals. That, that, that could be one strategy. Okay, thank you. Wow, brilliant advice. Thank, thank you so much for that. Um, we also have uh, Mr. Jackie Chen on stage, who is an expert in the manufacturing, shipping, and logistics space. Um, Jackie, it, it sounds like uh, one of your mentors owns a, a, a series of manufacturing facilities, and you said that there might be some interest in collaborating with Dan and his team in building the tractor. Help us understand a little bit more about what you do, Jackie. Thank you, Nate. Thank you for having me here. So uh, basically what we do is we were a contract manufacturing. So we were helping customers like uh, they have a robotic background or they have a medical background and then they were looking for a manufacturer that you can now um, build their product overseas. 
So this is what we do. So basically, we'll take over the design, and then we will evaluate the process, and then we will give customer a quote. And also, we were more than happy to giving customer the payment term. Okay, this is very unique we do right now. So eventually, another startup, they, they were not able to get a payment term from a manufacturer, especially when they were small, right? So we were more than happy to run a credit. So once their credit get approved, I mean, when I say credit, it's not like you have to be credit like Tesla or, or like Toyota or any other kind of Apple company, okay? So don't get scared from that. <laughs> um, basically, so once we saw there's uh, no issue, so we will give a good next 30 days or 60 days. Sometimes customer, uh, we offer 90 days, okay? So basically we upfront the cost and then helping customer to deliver the product. And then customer, they can sell the product first and pay us back. That's generally what we do right now. Okay. So, so because Dan's got, Dan, you mentioned you just got an order of, of, of 20 units. That's exciting. Congratulations. So rather than having to raise capital and dilute the value of the company, you could get the manufacturing handled early and then pay them back after the devices are, are delivered. Is, is that kind of right, Jackie? That's exactly right. Okay. Awesome. Is, might that be of interest to explore for you, Dan, or? Sure. I mean, I think we, we, uh, we're very open to, to figuring out uh, paths to, to make our product at scale. Um, I think for, for the time being, you know, we're, we're still making changes as we make uh, our units. So we've built a total of about seven or eight uh, units so far. Um, and uh, we're, we're, our latest batch was five devices that are identical, but the first onesies, uh, we were making significant changes between each version. And typically to, to, to work in, in a contract manufacturing environment, like we, we've we found that it makes more sense to have a frozen design uh, before we, we do that kind of ramping. And we're not sure where the design's gonna land, right? I think we, we, we do wanna give ourselves a little bit of wiggle room uh, for the, the next probably 40 to 50 units, uh, if not for the next 100 units. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but at some point, you know, we will be ready to, to scale and, and then it makes sense to, to go to a partner to, to do that kind of thing. Uh, Jackie, maybe you can tell me a little bit about how you deal with uh, changes like that and whether you prefer to work with customers once everything is frozen or if you actually work with projects that are still in our R&D evolving stage. I see. So, Sunstar, you are still on the kind of DVT stage, right? device validation testing stage. That's why you will need to make you know, multiple units to do the testing, as I understand right now, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, we, we also can help at this stage. So basically, uh, what I recommend is the early you find a manufacturer and then you discuss with the manufacturer the better because uh, uh, we will give you another kind of recommendation, not only from mechanical design, but most likely is to, we will be able to oversee the product kind of uh, itself, okay? Like what kind of issue maybe in the future we can help to reduce the manufacturing cost, right? So uh, this is something we can we can help to oversee. But on the software side, so as a manufacturer, we don't have any kind of recommendation, okay? But on the hardware side, like printed circuit board, on the housing, casing, and those kind of structure, mechanical, we have a kind of mechanical engineer in-house, so we can take a look at it and then give you a recommendation. 
Yeah, that, that's great. I, I think we should definitely talk. Yeah, you don't want to go into a situation that you already cannot kind of mold, and then later on you you find out, oh, this one is not property, so we have to change the mold, right? So this is something you wanted to avoid, not only because you, you have to spend more money, but the timing-wise, you will be spending more time to dealing with the kind of redesign, and then later on, your whole kind of logistic plan or kind of your, your production plan will be postponed for sure. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jackie. Um, Jen, it, we've got a, a couple minutes left here. Could you share a little bit about what what is synthetic data? I, I keep hearing this term, and I'm not sure what it is. Um, well, I, I, I think if you're uh, if you look at uh, real life, it tends to be pretty monotonous, right? I think you, you wind up having the same stuff that happens over and over again. Um, and uh, the tail events that we were talking about, whether it's birds that fly in the path of your tractor or a golf club that's abandoned on a fairway or anything like that, these tend to be infrequent events. And so what people do to uh, create more robust models is they'll create a synthetic sequence of events where all these things happen much more often and mm. that and then you can you can get creative with that and say well let's create events that never happen and just see how how the the learning system will deal with that um, an example and, and th this is actually an example that happens more than you might think Pilots get trained to land their airplanes on golf courses uh, when they run into trouble because there's usually no power lines over a golf course. It's a relatively smooth terrain. And so if you get in trouble, it's a reasonably safe place to land. Um, now, of course, there could be golfers there, and so they have to be strategic about how they do that, but you know they get trained to do that. And, and one famous incident was Harrison Ford crashed his airplane in 2015, and he wound up landing on a golf course in LA with a vintage World War II uh, fighter plane. And, um, and he survived, he was able to walk out of the crash. Now, if you, you know, if you have to look for your autonomous vehicle to run into an airplane landing on a golf course, that's not gonna happen you know, with any degree of prediction or predictability but you can create synthetic data that has an airplane landing on a golf course. And so, so synthetic data is a really great way of building um, uh, a data set that will train your machine to deal with the unexpected. Ah, okay, okay. Um, that, was, that was super clear, uh, so thank you for that. Um, also, also a very vivid image of, uh, of Harrison Ford crawling out of a, a <laughs> Like a, an old school plane, that's that's super neat. And then, likewise, uh, this is kind of an ancillary question around modeling, which you you touched on briefly. How how do you approach building in making sure that your your models are ethical and is objective is possible? I mean, I don't know if objectivity is even really uh, feasible, but how how do you approach that? Yeah, so there, there's multiple there's multiple approaches to, to doing that. Um, you know, some include making sure that your source data is uh, is appropriate. Um, so if, if you're doing something like facial recognition, you know, you might want to make sure that you have a diverse enough uh, set of faces to train your model 
Um, if you're doing a, a lending system, uh, you might want to make sure that uh, you remove information that might be tied to uh, racial uh, features if you're trying to avoid any kind of racial bias in your lending system. Um, and you know you want to make sure your models are generally focused on, on uh, avoiding these problems. And that, that goes back to my original advice on how to be a good data scientist is, is you should make sure that you understand the problem you're trying to solve and anticipate the kinds of problems you might run into and then uh, apply adequate solutions to avoid those problems, including, including bias. Got it, got it. And then Lisa Dedrick, thank you, Lisa, for the question. Uh, she asks, what type of learning environment is ideal for this tractor and what data has surprised you? Great question, Lisa. Yeah, it, that is a great question. Thank you. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the funny thing is we, we, we think the simplest learning environment is the best place to start. Uh, so for us, the very simplest job that we can do on a golf course is to pick up balls in the driving range. And in part, that's because it's a human exclusion zone. And so there's very low risk of people running into us. Uh, it's a very predictable job. Unlike mowing, it's okay if on undulated terrain, you don't have perfect overlap between runs. And so it's a, it's a great learning environment because it's relatively simple. Um, then once you achieve a high level of proficiency in a simple environment, then you can go to more complex environments, right, and get better and better at, at doing different jobs. Um, but, uh, but yeah, for us, a good, a good learning environment is one where we, we have the ability to learn these, these skills. Uh, terrific question. Um... Cool, wonderful. And um, lastly, it, it'd be great to uh, to have our community be impactful for you. We we had a couple. Uh, we ha we had some investors ask some great questions. What's a what's the best place for someone to learn more uh, about Arcadia Tractor? Yeah, so so the best place is is our website. But you should also feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn and um, just uh, create a connection and and send me a note, and I'd be happy to tell you more about us. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, Dan, it's been uh, terrific having you on, on the show here, Silicon Zombies, number 81 for us. And thank you so much for, for uh, teaching us a little bit about data science and, and opportunities for robotics in the world of tomorrow. So uh, I want to give another shout out to our sponsor, Nekodex. That's N-E-C-O-D-E-X. If you're building any products, uh, be it a, a website or a mobile application, they are your team. Uh, they're based down in Mexico, started $25 an hour and have done some fantastic work for our friends at uh, Bizinta, uh, among others. So be sure to tune in next Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific for more of the best brains in the Bay. And until then, take care of yourselves and take care of each other.